Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Lars Jacobson. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So we were talking just before the podcast started, uh, and you guys have some really interesting story about how you got into serverless and uh, how you got into SAM and now thinking about CDK. Can we start by maybe telling us about yourself and what you're doing at the Markham, which is one of the biggest online grocery stores in Sweden? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so first, some background about Markham. It was founded in 2006. I think the first order was placed around 2008. It was built as a .NET monolith from the beginning. I'm not going to talk bad about it because it was, it's quite a good piece of software, but it grew very large. I joined in 2013, at the end of the year. Uh, and I remember from the very beginning, we had the scalability issues of we reached, I think, a couple of hundred simultaneous shoppers on the site and stuff went down. So already then we started ripping out stuff like the shopping cart into MongoDB. And uh, we sort of bought more buffer to accept more customers. And because the market share we need, we knew that we couldn't scale to that many people on that platform we had. Uh, so we always knew that something had to happen. And then I think time went on and then in 2016 we had a budget to hire more developers but it was quite hard to hire developers for that tech stack we had because it was quite aged and uh, people sort of turned around in the door and said like we love the company we love your service but i don't really want to work on this um there were two aspects of scaling the the site and the number of users we could take and uh, also scaling the teams we wanted to grow when we wanted each developer to increase the productivity linearly with the number of developers we have and we found that the people we managed to hire it just increased the toe stepping because we were sharing the same code base and we didn't get the benefits of growing. Then in the autumn of 2016, we, we sat down, we thought we had to do something. We started ripping out the data access layer into its own service. Then a bit impulsively, we went to the OSCON conference in London, uh, the O'Reilly one, and it was all about microservices. And we were sold. We knew we wanted this, but we didn't know exactly how to do it. And because we all came from a .NET background, we missed this whole uh, Docker era. But then 2016 turned into be a bit of a like, perfect storm for us. It was a series of events that led to where we are now. So earlier that year, they had Microsoft had released .NET Core uh, that runs on Linux, which opened up this Docker possibility for us. So we came back from London, sat down, brainstormed for a week and thought, yeah, let's do Docker. We already had a site, tasteline.com. It's a recipe search site that's running on AWS. It's running without much maintenance, but we had an AWS account. So we started playing with ECS, uh, <laughs> got some stuff out in production. We learned the hard way, the importance of IAC, because we had to recreate the same stuff over and over again. And we just realized that we were spending so much time on figuring out how to configure these clusters and not enough time of developing features. And it's the feature development we love here. We're innovative by the core of the company. So we felt like it wasn't that much fun. The fun part is in writing code. And then we didn't go to reInvent that year, but we went to the reInvent recap in Copenhagen in January 2017. There we were introduced to the serverless application model. And we're like, hang on, that's exactly what we want. It's writing code without thinking about configuring clusters. And then we went home and things started escalating and we got really productive. And from a very early start, I remember, I think like day two of this, we started seeing like, oh, we... Well, if I take one step back and talk about the approach of this, we sat down and we defined a very few set of rules to follow. And the first debate was, how do we version control this? 
we came from a monoreaper background because we had one monolith and we decided to go for polyreaper approach where each repo has its own microservice which is set up from one CloudFormation stack or SAML stack. It follows the same naming convention so when you create a repository it will automatically create a code pipeline named the same way as a repository. It will also tag all your resources with the name of this and we let CloudFormation name your resources so wherever you see for example cart service if it's in a log in a metric you know exactly where to find the code in GitHub and we found that incredibly valuable. What we also found at another stage was that we're repeating ourselves a lot. So we created internal tooling for templating. It's sort of, if you can compare it with CDK that you create constructs with, uh, we create common patterns like SQS consumer with dead letter queuing in sane retry policy. But this was, of course, long before CDK. And then we started growing. We hired more and more people. We split ourselves up in smaller teams, domain-specific teams, where each team might be managing 10 to 20 different microservices. Uh, at the moment, we have about 300 microservices in production. Not everything is perfect, but a lot of it is really good. We've seen the pandemic as a live load test, and it went very successfully. We went from, I think we almost tenfold doubled in number of requests in one day when things started closing down. And we had a few hiccups, but nothing we couldn't fix in an hour. So yeah, it's been a good journey. I know it's taken a few years uh, to get there, but it uh, sounds like you guys have gone pretty far from falling over uh, when there's 100 shoppers online to now being able to handle some of the, I guess, the traffic spikes that comes with the pandemic. Do you have any sort of numbers around some of the new spikes that you're seeing during the, the shopping frenzy people had early on when the, they, they started to worry about supplies and all of that? Yeah, I've taken some numbers out. Um, so if we go back to, I think it was the beginning of March, I read the same thing happened in the UK with Ocado and uh, Tesco and all of those grocers that next available delivery day pushed forward in time. So people placed an order for like a week in ahead because there were no delivery time. So our bottleneck became the warehouse and the production part of it. And we saw that, yeah, we can't please all customers because we don't have the physical resources for it. But if you place an order for food 10 days before the delivery, you will still be disappointed because you don't know now what you need in 10 days. So we, I think we were the only ones who took this approach and we reshuffled things. So we only opened delivery times for two days ahead. So at least you get stuff that was fresh in your mind when you bought it. The consequence of that was that we announced to the customers that at 12 noon, we release a bunch of delivery times for two days in advance. And of course, people were sitting, hanging on the door at 12 to reserve delivery time. And there we went from what's normal pre-pandemic was roughly, I don't know, a normal evening when people go shopping is maybe 800 simultaneous shoppers to 1,000. Here we saw 6,000 delivery slots sold out in, I mean, two minutes. And the number of requests we had to the delivery time service that's reserving these times went from like zero before 12. People knew that there was no point clicking. To, I mean, you do the maths, a lot of requests. And I mean, when you reserve delivery time, there will be events present which will fire other Lambda functions. There were two issues that we learned. There was A, we had already increased the um, concurrent Lambda executions to a very high number. But what we learned there was that it still scales at bucket of 500 at a time. So we quickly saw that and then we made use of this uh, brilliant feature of uh, uh, provision concurrency. So we scaled up 15 minutes before 12 and uh, on some crucial services, crucial Lambda functions. And uh, that managed to handle the load perfectly. You couldn't notice any latency added to the site at all, despite having sudden like 
10,000 simultaneous users. It was a, it was a load test, which we hadn't planned for on production. Yeah, that's a really good use of uh, provision concurrency, especially for this kind of uh, sudden spikes where you, know, you do run into some of that uh, scaling limits you mentioned. And uh, also, I guess for you guys, uh, because you're still writing a lot of Lambda in .NET, well, yeah. or .NET Core, so I guess provision concurrency is also going to help you with uh, the cold start aspect as well, where you don't have to worry about uh, all these new .NET uh, modules that are having to you know, cold start at the same time and adding a bit of latency to the user experience. So in terms of the, some, I guess, your architecture, what does it look like? Because it sounds like there's a lot of API that's involved, uh, but you mentioned that you guys are also starting to do more and more event-driven stuff as well with the event bridge. Yeah, exactly. So... To go back to the provision concurrency for um, APIs, uh, let me first touch on how we work with API Gateway and Lambda. So we work with API Gateway, so we have one API Gateway for every stack that requires an API. Not all stacks have an API, some just do data processing. Uh, we do an, a Lambda proxy pattern there, so we use, for Node.js, we use some Express.js framework, we use ASP.NET for .NET. Uh, so we, you, you get this like multi-purpose big lambda which does more. Like, you, you give it a set of permissions, but then one endpoint might not use any of those. So it's uh, it's debatable if you should have one lambda function per API method. Or but this works for us. It also enables us to do local debugging. Obviously, all those artifacts get quite big, and it's depending on what you do in the bootstrapping phase of it. It will affect the cold start. We don't use provision concurrency for it yet. Uh, I find when I've been playing with it, it just the price of it frightens me a bit. It gets a bit expensive. What we do with these .NET lambdas where latency is crucial is A, we max the RAM. Uh, B, we have that old hack where you have, <laughs> it's called now event bridge rule that fires X number of concurrent requests to the API at a set rate just to keep them awake. It's a mitigation, it's not a solution. But what we find is that we typically get about, about one second cold start on the average Lambda. The very crucial ones, like the product search and those, we are in the process of rewriting to Node.js for cold start reasons. We're not locked into a language. We pick the ones that suits the use case best. Okay, uh, that's actually interesting because uh, with the provision concurrencies that uh, we're finding uh, people no longer need to use the Lambda warmers. But it sounds like you're worried about the provision concurrencies pricing. Is that something that you are seeing in the dev environment? Because in production, if you can get a certain amount of utilization out of your provision concurrency, which I think we did some numbers uh, a while back, something that if you get about 60% utilization, uh, you can actually end up being cheaper compared to on-demand is that because the, the traffic is so spiky that a lot of time you're not using the it's, full... Ah, okay, gotcha. I think it's a huge benefit in a way to exist in one time zone because we have very predictable patterns. I mean, you could compare one week to another and the traffic is... I mean, we could do anomaly detection very good because if something weird happens, there will be an anomaly. Uh, so we, we have very low traffic at night, steady traffic during the day, small spike at lunch because people do the shopping in the lunch break. And then it goes up in the evening and then it dies off at midnight, maybe before midnight. So if we were to use provision concurrency, right, I think, then we need to still do some manual scaling of that to scale down at night, because otherwise there's a set fee of the concurrency you provide. That's my understanding of it anyway. So with a provision concurrency, you can make it work with application auto-scaling. Uh, so you can set up a schedule. So in your case, uh, you can actually set up a, a schedule to say, scale up at, I don't know, 11.35 or 45 
uh, and then scale down the provision concurrency to from you know, 100 to 10 at uh, one o'clock. If you know your spike comes around between you know, 12 and one, same in the evening uh, when you release new slots, you can set a scheduled scaling activity or action to be triggered at the say quarter to 12 and then another one to scale back down maybe after the 12 o'clock uh, rush when everyone uh, try to get that 6,000 slots uh, in two minutes. So you could control those uh, using a schedule, uh, which is great I think in your case because it's uh, so predictable like you said, that happens every single day. And then in between during the day, you just use a very low number of uh, provision concurrency just to stop those uh, functions that doesn't get used often. So every time someone uses it, uh, it's going to be a cold start. So I think that's that's probably uh, what you should have a look at in terms of how to use provision concurrency and to remove some of that the manual task that maybe you have right now. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know it uh, hooked in with application autoscaling. It still adds another layer of uh, configuration to the stack, but we should definitely look at that for certain APIs. I don't think it's a, a doable thing to do for all APIs, but yeah, as you say, like the ones where latency is crucial. I'll take a note of that. Thank you. Just to use uh, provision concurrency, you have to use aliases, which adds another layer of, like I said, um, configuration and complexity as well. For the latency sensitive stuff uh, that you don't want to have to rewrite um, to, in order to optimize for cold start performance, uh, then it's still a really good option. Um, I'm curious as to what you're doing with EventBridge and I guess the event-driven architecture that you envision uh, you guys going into. Yeah, uh, we worked from an early start with uh, SNS to SQS. Well, we go back to the very beginning, we want a good way to trigger lambdas based on events, and we often quite wrongly used Kinesis for this, and this was before there was native uh, SQS to lambda support. We then uh, started using uh, SNS to SQS, so PubSub method, uh, which works fine. Uh, the problem I found there uh, was that it created a coupling both ways between the, the producing side and the consuming side, because typically, or Always, the producer of the event owns the topic, so that's created in a stack that's produced in the event. The consumer will then reference that topic via a CloudFormation export, creating a coupling. And also, then on the consuming end, we want to make use of message filtering. But the producer doesn't know what the consumers want to filter on. Then we saw there was a lot of talks between teams, uh, lots of pull requests sent from the consumer side to the producing side, where you just add a message attribute, like, I want to filter on this status or whatever. I think one of the goals of my life is to remove friction between, I'm making it sound like that I don't want people to talk to each other at work, we do, but maybe instead of asking for favors, uh, sharing knowledge instead of interrupting each other. So when EventBridge, I remember like a year before EventBridge, I was sitting and talked to our SA about uh, why don't you use uh, CloudWatch events, because the pricing is similar to SNS, uh, the payload size is similar, and then we get the content-based filtering. Uh, we agreed, like, yeah, maybe it's not built that way. It's not how it's promoted. So maybe it's wrong to use that way. And then a year later, I think they listened into our conversation and they built EventBridge, which is CloudWatch events on steroids. We didn't jump on it straight away. I uh, don't know why, really, but I think around December time, I think they released updates to the content-based filtering at reInvent. And I remember I sat at reInvent and play, was playing with this, with the schema registry in it. And I started seeing all these opportunities of, hang on, can this actually replace our SNSSQS? Pretty much all of it. And we spoke to the EventBridge team at reInvent, and they were like, yeah, people do that. So we went back and did that, and we started using Schema Registry. 
already when it was in a preview state. And we start building. <laughs> the power of EventBridge is, as I said, the content-based filtering. The difficult part of it is, is to write the patterns. So we wrote a tool called EVB CLI, which lets you automatically build event patterns from the scheme registry. It's a CLI tool. And what we found when we removed the whole pattern composition part of it and automated that, it gets incredibly fast to build patterns. And then we start to think, like, what's an event? I say nine times out of ten, an event is raised upon data mutation, often in a DynamoDB table. So we create a macro which hooks up DynamoDB stream with EventBridge and just passes on the events onto EventBridge. And when we do that, we also add some metadata to the event about what CRUD operation caused this event, what has changed in it. And we also send the full old state and the new state. So it's basically a DynamoDB record passed on to EventBridge with added metadata. So it's a fan out pattern from DynamoDB. Okay, so when you're publishing those customer events to EventBridge, uh, are you making sure that you always publish the new and old image, essentially trying to mimic what the DynamoDB streams does? Yeah, so we take the old image and the new image. We wrap them up in, so our payload looks like, um, I think it's similar to what Lego does. So we have a standard pattern, which is metadata and data that goes under detail. The data has new and old, so that's a new and old image. The metadata has stuff like the CRUD operation. It's got the, an array of the JSON paths to the changed items in the, between new and old. So you can do some matching on if certain properties has changed or not. We have sometimes issue of the payloads being too large, if it's large items in the table. That often goes back to the table design is not optimal. But uh, I do have a wish that they will increase the size limit on EventBridge and SNS and SQS. Okay, so I guess in this case, uh, you have a centralized, uh, you say one event bus for everything. No, we don't touch the default event bus. Uh, that's for the AWS service events. Uh, we have split up our organization in logical areas. We have the e-commerce platform, we have, we have the supply chain, we have some other data platform. Every logical, larger domain of the organization has their own event bus. So all e-commerce services would raise events on the commerce event bus. We have logically grouped this like this, that we were thinking like if we were to move into a more multi-account strategy, an event bus would live in the same account. Yeah, because uh, right now, at least as of today, um, this, I guess the developer experience working with uh, cross-accounts with EventBridge is not particularly great. Um, EventBridge does have the cross-account delivery, of course, uh, but it always delivers to the default and also trying to subscribe across accounts. That is still quite clumsy right now. I do find it interesting that you're using multiple event buses because one of the things that one of the reasons a lot of people uh, say they want to use EventBridge instead of SNS is because the content-based filtering allows you to use one event bus for your entire application. If you have something that want to do, say, some kind of journaling of all the events that's been put into event bus, I guess you have to then subscribe to every single event bus there are in the entire yeah. system. We we have five event buses. Um, I've thought of that scenario as well. You will need to have something in between that to consolidate them into one event bus. That's true. I don't have a. I mean, it's not a good reason apart from structuring that why we went for these event buses. Uh, I think it's just to get some structure. Okay, sure. I don't mean to say that uh, it's uh, you know it's, it's wrong or it's bad. It's just that it's uh, I guess a little bit different to what I've seen. A lot of customers uh, use EventBridge. 
uh, whereby they tend to have just one bus for all the events and then just do content-based uh, filtering based on the detail type. See, I guess similar to how the whole of AWS has got the one default bus that you can listen in on, uh, even though there's God knows how many different services or publishing events into that same bus. Um, you also have uh, some tooling to help working with and debugging events in EventBridge as well, right? Yeah, so um, if we go back to the beginning of the chat, where I told you about this internal tool we built. We call it the MH CLI, uh, which is doing the templating. It also does other boilerplate stuff, which basically when a developer does something for the third time and thinks this is getting boring, they add a command to that CLI. And I've been talking to other companies and stuff where we have done like, internal demos and stuff of this, and they go, oh, will that go open sourced? And we've been, we spent some time discussing it, but if it had been done nice, it had been like your CLI, the Lumigo CLI, because that's like a multi-purpose cross-service productivity tool. Whereas ours, yeah, it is fast, but it wouldn't fit into any other organization. But we have discussed to do it. And then when we start to work with EventBridge and we found that it takes time to compose patterns, especially when they get complex, uh, we built uh, the EVB CLI, which as I said before, it hooks into the schema registry passes the schemas, lets you browse it, and from there, build patterns. And it would just, as of the other day, you can now inject it straight into your template where it's supposed to be. It also lets you, because we had developers saying they get confused that they don't know who is subscribing to their events. There's been use cases when you want to know, like, oh, where is this being propagated to? I think it's when they want to make a breaking change, then if no one is listening to the events, then they can go ahead and do it. But if, if 10 people are doing it, then they need to know. It also has capability of browsing, so you can select a schema, you can see where is that schema actually used in patterns, and you can see how it's transformed into the target, what the target is. Then in parallel to that one, and don't ask me why I did this into two different uh, tools, I just did, uh, there's EVB Local, which it's contains of two parts. One is a CloudFormation stack you deploy to your AWS account. The other one is a CLI. It lets you... You can listen in on a Stacks event, so you can hook it into a CloudFormation stack. You will parse it and find all the event rules, and it will spit out the payload to your console. You can also pipe it into the SAM local CLI, so you can set breakpoints in your code based on real-life events in AWS. It also lets you test rules before you deploy your template. So you can write a rule in your template. It will then create that rule in AWS and create a pipe back to your console, and that's using API Gateway WebSockets. So you have a WebSocket connection down to your console. And same there, you can then pipe those events into some local. And we find doing that, it saves the developers a lot of time. You don't have to do the round trip of actually deploying stuff to test it. Because doing integration tests with EventBridge, it's quite difficult unless you physically deploy stacks. Yeah, tell me about it. I've had to, well, I've, I've actually wrote a blog post a while back that talked about how you can uh, test the, you can add EventBridge or SNS uh, as into your, well, as part of your integration or end to end test. And the very day that you're sending the right stuff to EventBridge. And one of the approach I discussed is also what you just described using API Gateway uh, WebSockets that I can listen in on from my JS test. Uh, so that uh, I can invoke a function or either run it locally or invoke it uh, uh, by API gateway that's been deployed and then the listening on the event being published into EventBridge bus so that uh, I know, okay, uh, when this API runs, uh, it does publish the right events so that the other systems are uh, able to tap into that event and listen to it. Yeah, 
I've seen that pattern being used in um, in integration testing in uh, I think in code build. Someone has, or maybe it's end to end test. I should call it. If I fire this something to this API endpoint, I will expect this event to be raised within a second. And then you can you can test that flow as part of your continuous integration. Um, so you've built a lot of tooling around uh, your development team so that uh, you can automate a lot of the boilerplate or the boring stuff that they have to do constantly. Have you looked at uh, something like a CDK? Because some of the things that you were talking about earlier in terms of generating templates, uh, that's something that we're seeing a lot of people use CDK for that. Yeah, I want to ride the wave of CDK because I hear everywhere I go, people are raving about it. I think it looks like a great tool. Um, where we, I think we have to look at in context of how we are working. Uh, the approach we did with the, our templating engine that creates these, how you can call them constructs of, an example, if a PubSub pattern where you create a subscription from SNS topic into uh, a SQS queue and a Lambda function with a retry policy and a deadlift queue, that's a typical CDK construct. We, well, we created that before CDK even existed, but our tool writes pure cloud formation. The benefit I see in doing that is that the developers who own the stack, they will see what they are deploying in a template. And also, we don't enforce any specific programming language. But if we were to work with CDK and we want everyone to contribute to these constructs, who decides the language to use? But the use case I'm thinking of for CDK is that our templating engine, it does two things. It produces code in .NET, in Python, or in Node, and the template that goes around it. You could replace a templating, because I mean, the, our templating engine is not flawless, and we could integrate that with CDK. So the stuff that's spat out into your template when you use the MHCLI is actually produced by constructs from CDK. And that's something I'm, I have in my short-term pipeline to look at. But then I haven't touched CDK that much yet, so I'm not really sure what's possible and what's not possible. But from what I read, I think that should be possible. Yeah, that should be in the realm of a possibility. And certainly I know uh, companies like uh, Alma Media, who I spoke with a while back, uh, are doing a lot of, a lot of similar things uh, in terms of using the CDK to create uh, patterns or high-level constructs like uh, SQSQ with all these uh, default alerts configured uh, and also with uh, delete queue configured as well. Um, just as one simple construct that you can distribute across all of your teams as a shared libraries. And then you can basically take those best practices that you have learned collectively as an organization and then just reuse that rather than everyone have to constantly remember, right, we need to create that at the queue and we need to set the alert so that when there's something gets dropped into that at the queue, we get, you know, we get notified and we know to look at that. So I think that's definitely something that's uh, getting very popular uh, with uh, CDK and also a very good use case uh, for CDK. But I think you also touched on some of the potential challenges with uh, CDK as well, especially in a large organization where, you know, potentially you have a centralized ops team that need to have some governance on the resources that get provisioned. And if every team is just using their own, you know, their favorite language to provision and write the CDK constructs, then that team is going to have a hard time trying to work with essentially what four or five different languages uh, that people are using for CDK. So how are your team structured? Do you have like a centralized ops team that manage a lot of these things for you? Or do you just let the developers do their own thing? We push out the responsibility for all the infrastructure creation through uh, CloudFormation templates to the developers. We have this mindset of you, you build it, you, you run it. So 
now we don't have a centralized ops team and i think that's something we've been working from the beginning because as i said before we want to avoid friction between teams and i've worked in places before where there was a development team qa team and um, and an ops team or sysadmin team there was never like a like a steady flow of work between them. There was always someone who acted the bottleneck. So the closest you get to an ops team is my team, uh, which I'm in. So there's three of us. We just hired a guy last week. So it's been two until recently. The way I look at setting the guidelines and uh, tooling and stuff, I see, I see my job is as I'm constantly trying to make myself redundant. Uh, I don't want to be... I We've gone through short periods where I've become a bottleneck or my team has become a bottleneck where developers are waiting for us to enable stuff for them. What we do instead is that we, we, we provide them with the guidelines and the tooling they need to do their work without coming to us all the time. It's working really well. We've gone through shorter periods when it's been not very aligned, but I think that goes with anything. Okay, yeah, that sounds, I guess, a sensible approach uh, where you focus on building tooling and enabling other teams to do their own thing as opposed to being a gatekeeper, which I do find uh, maybe some of the larger organizations are still operating with, uh, I guess, uh, maybe more traditional models of how to organize their teams. uh, And that does create a lot of friction, even as the teams adopt technologies like serverless where they can move a lot faster, but then everything slows down. The moment they need to rely on this centralized ops team to do something to add resources to AWS account because the teams themselves can't do it. Yeah. I mean, there are certain things we, we do look after. We look after the single sign-on stuff, the control tower parts of it as well, because uh, we don't want everyone to be there. But if you go and look at something like the single sign-on thing, that was one place where we became a bottleneck. Uh, what we quickly did was we called a meeting for all the, the dev leads for all the teams, make them SSO admins, and we asked them to manage their own users and new starters. So we, we, we're delegating out work like that uh, in a controlled manner. Okay. Since you've moved to serverless, uh, what would you say are some of the biggest benefits it has brought to your teams and also to the company as a whole? Yeah, I would say uh, a lot. I mean, I think that there are different pillars you need to look at. Uh, with, uh, it also depends on the context you came from before. For us, our two blockers were, I mean, we knew we had to scale up their service. Uh, so um, it's a site, the scalability of the site, scalability of warehouses and the production lines, and also the scalability of teams. What we can control on the tech side are the development of the site and making that scalable. And then we have very talented people out in the production lines scaling up the warehouses. I mean, for, as an example, when the pandemic started, we acquired a new warehouse, which we got from empty to up and running in, I think, four weeks. So. The whole mindset of being agile is in the core of the company. So the benefits of going serverless uh, is scalability of the site. I mean, we would never have been able to handle the pandemic with what we had before going serverless, uh, with that massive uh, stampede of customers coming all at once. So that, that was really a token of, yeah, we did the right choice because people just sat back and watched it and it, it just worked like a well-tuned machine uh, with a few hiccups, but let's not talk about those. The second part is when we now so we had a big investment in the middle of in the middle of this. So, so we had a huge investment of one of the Shinovik, uh, one of the major tech investors in Sweden, just when we were about ready with launching the new site. So we were subject to I mean, a thorough technical review during the due diligence, and I think the fact that we landed that I think that shows that there's faith in our technology and the scaling of it, and that we have a future-proof solution. And also hiring people. 
Now, when we get new starters in, we can see that productivity is almost linear with the number of people. Whereas before, as I mentioned earlier in the chat, that when we hired more people, there's less contribution each person accounted to because of merge conflicts, toe-stepping. You work on the same code base. Now, also, we're working in a technology sector where people want to be. I saw this when we decided to go serverless, and I read up on containers, and I felt this is a natural step. It's probably not going to end with where we are now, but this is a step in the direction where technology will go. So I think from a developer perspective, it's a really good. You need to look at work in as you do it eight hours a day. It has to be meaningful. You have to learn stuff. And I think work in this sector, we teach people the right things. So growing the team is really easy. We are very fast time to market. I'm, I have a little equation in my head about what should take time when you build new features. It's the idea part of it that always takes time to work out a new idea. Writing the code, what's in between setting up CICD and de- deploying it should be minimized. And we have that. We can get a new feature out in minutes if we are fast enough at writing code. So it's the agility. We are very dynamic. We can react fast to changes in the market. I think that sums up the benefits. Then another big pillar is the, the billing part of it. We are constantly working on cost optimizations. We have some places where we could focus on more, which we haven't because we have been very keen on getting the site out and working. Not saying that we are running an expensive workload, but there's always work to be done on the cost optimizations. Okay, that's really good to hear that you guys have reaped a lot of benefits from going serverless. But is there anything that uh, you wish uh, AWS would do better? I guess this is where you can give your top uh, three AWS wishlist items for things like EventBridge or SAM or something else. Yeah, you, I mean, you, you did pre-warn me about this question. Uh, I have a list of a few things. One of the things, <laughs> I listened to a few of your episodes before, but then yesterday I was going through a few more. And uh, something that's been on my mind, which obviously been on other people's mind, is that... Uh, AWS has a serverless solution for pretty much everything apart from search. Uh, we use Elasticsearch, and I'm a bit scared of that cluster. Sometimes it's it's running flawlessly, but it does require some patches. It re- requires some manual work, which I always find a bit daunting. So I would love some form of serverless Elasticsearch solution or similar. Then with EventBridge... Uh, I want to, and also for any, I mean, SNS, SQS as well, to be able to handle large payloads, larger than 256K, because I think it's, I think, yeah, I know some people just send their, like a reference to the item that raised the event, and then you fetch it through an API call at the receiving end. Uh, I don't like that. I, I want the whole event to get it to be filterable and, and things. And then it does happen that sometimes in rare occasions you need large events. When we were back at SNS SQS, we solved that with uh, passing via S3 and just sending the reference if it was a large item. But then with EventBridge, you would lose the content-based filtering. And I have another one on EventBridge. It's, uh, I think what's lacking there is a better like retry handling. And I want to be able to set up a retry policy with like exponential backoffs and uh, deal queuing and stuff. I feel like that's there's, there's something missing there. But then we have to remember that EventBridge is still a new service, which is performing really well. And uh, I'm hoping that there would be focus from the AWS side on that. I just started working with the embedded uh, metrics client library for Node. And I think it's great to create custom metrics. But that leads to another wishlist item. CloudWatch logs ingestion is quite expensive. And we want to collect metrics and data. But that leads to, I mean, Lambda itself is quite cheap. But then CloudWatch does add to that. and um, 
So I'd, I don't like to have, have in mind like, oh, how verbose can I actually be with when I'm logging my stuff? So yeah. And then I asked the team, this is a fourth point now coming, I asked the team about what they think and I had a good feedback. Uh, I think both GCP and Azure has this concept of a, of a page where you can list all your resources uh, across accounts. So I just in one consolidated view, I can drill into which are my S3 buckets, which are my Lambda functions. And because now it's all over the place in the console. So yeah, that's my four items on the three item wish list. Yeah, excellent. Uh, that's uh, well, I certainly uh, can concur with everything that you mentioned, especially the serverless uh, search. I've just spent the last couple of days on a client project setting up an Elasticsearch cluster and setting up alone is um, it's tricky, not to mention all the maintenance that comes after that. Yeah, yeah, I do hear your pain. Uh, and it's one of the, I guess uh, for a lot of people, that's the one sort of server for component they have to run in their stack because there's no equivalent within AWS at least. Um, so typically I use uh, Algolia. But to use Algolia and uh, use the sort of get a heap of compliance um, is quite expensive. And the Elasticsearch is a heap of compliance. So it's kind of, you know, for, for this project, it's kind of what I well, what we have to use. Uh, but I, yeah, it is a lot of um, overhead compared to what I normally have to deal with. Um, yeah, so thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to us today. Before we go, how can people find you on the internet? How they can find me on the internet? I'm, I'm not that active, actually. I've I got a Twitter account. Uh, LA Jacobson. Uh, I, I'll send all this to you so you can put it in the summary later. That's basically me updating, uh, sending out updates about the tooling we build. We have, in addition to the event bridge tools I talked about before, we have some other tooling around generating policies, generating diagrams from CloudFormation templates and stuff. That's all under GitHub repo called MH Labs, inspired by AWS Labs. And uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Okay, excellent. Uh, you've already sent me some of the tools that you publish, so I'm going to make sure that those are uh, in the show notes and uh, also a few other things that, that we talked about in this episode. Uh, those will be also linked in the show notes as well. And also I'll add Twitter and your LinkedIn uh, profiles uh, to, the, to there so that people can find you. And again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and I hope you stay safe and uh, hopefully see you in person sometime soon. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Stay safe. You too. Bye-bye. Cheers, bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com and I'll see you guys next time.